My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand Western media bias through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. As there's no housekeeping this week, uh, let's just jump right into the question of the week. So this week's question of the week uh, comes from an anonymous listener and is the person is asking about our episode in the United Kingdom. Aren't supporting freedom abroad and democracy at home mutu- mutually compatible? Balder, what do you think? Well, this is, of course, in response to a slight rant that I want to say we, but basically I had uh, last week when it came to the issue of the UK needing to focus on itself, which is, by the way, true for a lot of European and North American societies, where rather than worrying about whether other countries are sufficiently democratic and sufficiently liberal, just look at all the weaknesses at home, right? Of course, the answer to this is theoretically, ideally, yes, they would be compatible in the sense of, say, we've got a strong society at home and we are also going to encourage other people to follow our example, other countries to follow our example if they are so inclined to do so. That's, That's absolutely true. The problem is that in practice, it becomes a substitute. So by saying, look how terrible Iran is, because Iran is not a democracy and they've got a horrible human rights record, etc., etc. We are diverting attention from ourselves. So I would have no problem with saying they're completely compatible if we were doing well at home, but we're not doing particularly well at home. And therefore, it is something that becomes an obstacle to talk about others. It's a little bit like uh, us at a, at a personal level ranting about... The, be- the moral behavior of our neighbor. Uh, that makes us feel good about ourselves and it actually makes it less likely that we look at our own behavior. We are casting a critical look on others rather than cr- going through an introspective process. And so the short answer for me to the question is yes, in an ideal world, but we do not live in an ideal world. And with this, uh, we're moving on to today's episode on the Western media bias. And as always, we're starting with what are the facts in two minutes? When we refer to the media in this episode, we are generally speaking about journalism. Journalism is defined as the production and distribution of reports on the interaction of events, facts, ideas and people that are the news of the day. In our world, the media. The media has been a fundamental aspect of the development of Western societies, as it played a significant role in mobilizing popular support in favor of the liberal revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries. Examples include the American Revolution against the British Crown, the French Revolution, or the 1848 revolutions in modern-day Germany. Media can be broadly classified into four historical ages. The ages of newspapers and plays, magazines and class, broadcasting and mass, and internet and space. What they all have in common is that the media formed a basis for the evolution of Western societies by strengthening social and political fabric. The media is also referred to as the fourth estate or fourth power in its explicit capacity to keep the traditional three branches of government, the legislative, the executive, and the judiciary accountable for their actions. And with this, it has a significant effect on society One of these is called the CNN effect and is a theory that states that global television networks like CNN play a significant role in determining the actions policymakers take and the outcomes of events. The theory argues that the extent, depth, and speed of the new global media have an effect on policy agenda setting agents and can be uh, impediment to the achieving of desired policy goals and accelerating policy decision-making. Empirical studies have shown mixed results with respect to the validity of the CNN effect, but it is clear that 24-hour news coverage is correlated to decision-making. The media landscape has been changing quickly because of technological developments, and as a result, traditional media outlets have lost power relative to social media and the like. In this episode, we will make a distinction here if necessary. 
And with this, I think we can move on to our next category. What is the bubble? So, I mean, before we answer the question, what's the bubble? Uh, I think it is important here, at least it is important to us, that we kind of rein reinforce uh, one of the themes that we have uh, we've clearly stated in our introduction episode. That's right. That's we all essentially live in continuous bubbles, not just one, but many. And this uh, this is not something that we have invented. This is something that has been widely covered in psychological and even philosophical literature. Uh, every individual on a daily basis lives in certain types of bubbles. Um, us, for example, having a bias towards our near surroundings. We care more about what happens in the next street rather than in the street half the world away. Uh, when we uh, have a social environment that is left-leaning or right-leaning, that will bias our way of looking at the world. At a slightly psychologically deeper level, if you as a child experienced a horrible event, for example, your house, your parental house burning down, then you're going to care more about funding for fire uh, stations, firemen and women. Uh, if you are currently looking for a job, you're going to be more sensitive to um, policy measures that encourage job growth and those kinds of things. These are normal biases that we as human beings have on a daily basis. And, and some of them are very deep. Some of them are very superficial. Some of them we are kind of aware of. Others, not so much. And the, the biggest here that we in this podcast are discussing every week, and that is hardly noticeable for most people, but it's very deeply ingrained and has huge impact on foreign policy making is the democratic bubble. The idea that we all are trained to just worship liberal democracy and at most we criticize certain aspects of it or we're worried that it's not strong enough. But there is never a serious conversation about do we actually want democracy and what are the consequences of that kind of democracy that we live in. That is a huge bubble with very significant implications for our individual and our country's behavior on the world stage. And so this being it on bubbles in general, and this week we want to focus, and we have to say again, on the media. As last week we already talked about the Western media with the specific case of Ukraine, and then we realized that there's a lot more to unpack and maybe a lot more to explain of how this bubble is actually created, so how this bubble is formed. And again, it's just very important uh, to us to mention once again that there's not some evil overlord or tyrannical government that is telling Western media outlets what to, uh, what to publish and whatnot, but that, that this is simply the result of a very long process of a bubble well growing. And here I think then we should start uh, already by dissecting all of this. And maybe we should start with, with the issue of framing and a certain narrative that exists in the Western bubble. Right. These are also um, widely analyzed concepts, right? So when we tell a story, whether you're a journalist or not, we can frame it in a certain way. So I can honestly tell a story about a historical event. And depending on how I frame it, uh, I can make one side or the other side be the good guys or the bad guys. That's that's That depends on the words I use to describe them. And I don't have to lie about that. I don't have to manipulate the explicitly, but I can do so implicitly by just using certain, um, certain choices, uh, certain sentences, and leaving out other facts and other issues that might actually go against the type of framing, right? So... If you're in a, in, a, in a debate, that's a very common way to sway the audience in your direction by framing it in a way that is favorable to your worldview. And this is something that the media does all the time, obviously, uh, framing the story according to their own political agenda, their own personal agenda, whatever. That is not something new. And that is often because they have a certain narrative to push. We all have a certain narrative to push, right? And that, again, this is not just a journalistic thing. This, this is something that every individual to a certain extent has. We have a certain worldview and want, we want to push that worldview outwards. 
And in order to push that narrative outwards, uh, we can frame events and our observations and our understanding of the world in a certain way. Exactly. And I mean, so, so just because you just used the word agenda, um, I mean, it's not necessarily that people are then sitting down and are thinking about, oh, what evil agenda could I, could I frame uh, could I frame today? But that this is mostly based on very personal convictions and simply understanding of the world. Absolutely. And not even something that we then ourselves are aware of or the journalist is aware of, right? It is, it is not even like I'm a... I'm a convinced socialist and I want to make the, so the world a socialist place. No, no, it is the very just deeply ingrained things are things that have shaped us over time and that we don't even recognize about ourselves, but we're still pushing for that. And that kind of narrative and that kind of framing and that kind of bubble is often the scariest because you're not explicit to it about yourself. So you're not going to be explicit about it to the rest of the world. And then something that we... I mean, there is a lot out there when it comes to describing the media is that people who tend to go into the field of media, they tend to be a bit more idealistic. So there's a lot of idealism that also feeds into the Western bubble. Absolutely. Uh, one of the clear characteristics of journalism is that you, you don't go into media to become rich. You don't go into media to... Uh, you know, make your parents necessarily proud, even though a lot of parents will be very proud if their children are great journalists, don't get me wrong, but you go into the media because you, ha you have a, you feel responsibility towards society or you feel that you have a aptitude for discovering news, for discovering events, for maybe being really that fourth estate, right? Or you, 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 you feel that you are capable of holding power to account. And that kind of idealism um, typically is associated with, you know, what, what, the traditional left or however you want to uh, frame it. <laughs> and as a result, there's often a criticism of mainstream media that it is left-wing biased, but that is not some kind of conspiracy by the left. It is just that typically there are more people with sort of idealistic leanings going into these kinds of jobs than people with more conservative right-wing leanings. See, and this is, I mean, then also in here, I want to bring up the example of, of Germany, just because it's the case I know the best, where... There are even structural reasons behind this uh, or that are pushing for this further. And here it is that uh, a journalist, after having gone to university, they need to do like a voluntariat. So a voluntary period where for 15 to 24 months, they work in different areas of media and with, with very little pay. Um, and then the outcome of this is that, is that only people from a certain socioeconomic background can afford to do this uh, unless they are... They maybe have received funds from elsewhere, but that I mean, there is this common understanding that journalists in Germany tend to come from an academic background, so academic parents, also upper middle class, and then this uh, then overall pushes kind of this narrative of being very idealistic, um, having high ideals, but not necessarily the whole comprehensive understanding of all of society. Absolutely, obviously not. You know, I wouldn't necessarily associate upper middle class necessarily with idealism, but once you put those two together, you've got if you've idealistic upper middle class people or certainly middle class. I mean, it's not always upper, but but certainly middle class people going into these kinds of professions, you already have a very specific worldview. And if a whole newspaper or CNN or a whole media group is dominated by those kinds of people, there are a few patterns that straight away become clear. First of all, they reinforce each other's view because they come from that similar background. It's a specific view that they reinforce. It's a specific view of who they are and what their role towards society is. Not a, I'm, that's not a bad or good perspective. We're not judging that in itself, but it is a narrow view compared to all the other types of bubbles and views that are out there. Uh, and, and so what you get is very quickly a kind of mutually reinforcing dynamic pushing a specific narrative and framing stories in that specific way. And we have seen exactly this uh, during COVID, right? When one of the main criticisms from our side, but also in general, was that 
if you are a journalist uh, reporting about staying at home or lockdown measures from a very nice and comfortable house, uh, that's a different perspective than from a lower lower income family where three to four, maybe even six uh, family members are living in a two bedroom apartment. So that there you have these obvious differences where maybe for the middle class idealistic journalist, the main concern is health and public health. And the main concern for that low income uh, class family is trying to have a family living, a family surrounding uh, possible in, in a two bedroom apartment. Absolutely. If you're upper upper middle class, you cannot imagine risking your own life. We can argue whether people actually risk their own lives, but okay, risking their your own life um, in order to keep a job or in order to get money in. You know, the worst that can happen is that you have to eat into your savings a little bit, or if it gets really bad, you have to up your mortgage a little bit, or something like that. But you will always prioritize your life. Obviously, if you're a parent with four children who might actually go hungry if you don't bring in money every week, then you don't care at all about COVID. Uh, You say, look, this is a risk that I have to take as a parent because money needs to keep flowing. And that is a narrative that that middle-class attitude would not understand. And so what you see is that during a time such as COVID, with a very serious health concern, of course, let's, let's be clear, COVID was a serious health problem and it, 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 it overloaded the health services. You had a media that very much reacted from their own instinctual perspective, their own perspective of, oh, people are dying. How can we stop that? By Let's, let's do lockdown. Let's stay inside. That seems the reasonable thing. Let's shut down shops. And, and, then, and then we'll think about how to compensate the shopkeeper somehow. But, but, but we have to make sure that we get this virus under control. Whereas there were countless, countless families that weren't crazy, that didn't, they, they sure understood that, that COVID was a problem and is a problem for society, but that had a different way of prioritizing. And that perspective was completely unrecognized by the media. So now that we've looked at the individual perspective and maybe the individual environment of journalists, then let's move on to the organizational kind of framework here. So what are the organizational and maybe even environmental convictions that will also reinforce the Western bubble here? Well, so these are some things that we already mentioned. The fact that you are surrounded by like-minded people in an organization that has a certain perspective on what they are uh, supposed to do. Now, for example, and I again am failing you, Dario, because I should have looked this up at uh, before the episode started, but if you look at the Guardian mission statement, uh, for example, the, the Guardian mission statement is something to give hope to the hopeless. And I'm paraphrasing, but it comes down to that. You, anyone can find it on their website. And the moment that you are in an organization that has a clear purpose that that wants not not from an editor's perspective not from a hierarchical perspective but an organization that tells itself that we are doing the right thing because we've got a specific political perspective or we have a very important role to play to hold power to account then you're going to be self you're going to be reinforcing those mechanisms to each other right and you're going to have people who compliment you on writing certain articles and who will not look kindly upon those who write different types of articles. You're going to have a wonderful working environment as long as you play the game. The moment you don't play the game, you're going to be in trouble. That's the case, by the way, for a lot of people in different work scenarios, not just the media. But in the media, the consequences are much clearer because as a journalist, it kind of pushes you softly, not not in a direct, explicit way, but it pushes you softly into reporting certain things and reporting those things in a certain way. Yeah, since 1821, the mission of the Guardian has been to use clarity and imagination and to build hope. Uh, yeah, just to just to basically back uh, back that up what you just said. And then within these organizations, you also have people with their own personal ambitions. Um, and this, I assume, kind of factors into what you just said is that there is a certain, well, there are certain convictions within the environment. And if you want to make it in that organization, obviously you can't be well fundamentally opposed to them. Of course not, but you also can't really be too edgy, right? 
Exactly. And again, this is not exclusive to the media. Anyone working in any large or, or small, in fact, organization knows that if you do certain things, your chances for promotion or your chances for a raise are going to go up. But the consequences for the media are more problematic because it actually corrupts your process much more clearly. So if you work in a pure business environment and you know that closing a certain deal will make it more likely that your boss recognizes you and will give you a promotion, you're still consistent with the very essence of who you are. But in the media, if you're a journalist and you know that writing certain stories, I don't know, if you write for the New York Times and you have another hit piece on Donald Trump, that that's going to make you more likable and um, more likely to actually get professional rewards then, of course, that's going to corrupt a little bit the way that you perceive the world and the way that you select your stories and the way that you frame your stories. Not always directly. You're not always necessarily aware of that. And that is very important to realize here that most of the things we discuss are implicit rather than explicit. It's not you waking up in the morning and saying, ah, how can I get my boss to give me a raise? But you kind of know it, that if you do a certain thing, that you will be pushed in that direction. And, and you also know what not to touch. And if you do touch it, that you have to be very careful. You already mentioned the, I mean, well, you mentioned businesses in general, but obviously most of these newspapers, they also need to be uh, profitable because they are businesses. And then here you have the business case, right? Where also money plays a role. And here, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a bunch of different things. The first one I would like to look at is simply clickbaiting. Is that it's not only that this the next New York uh, well the next Donald Trump piece for the New York Times is going to go over really well with with maybe the the publisher, but it's also just that there's an audience out there that wants to read more on Donald Trump being most likely a bad guy. Exactly, and that's once again a corruptive process, right? Rather than you as a journalist saying I am gonna use my own cognitive abilities and I'm going to use my own perceptions to inform the reader of what I see as being important you're trying to cater to the reader you're going to, you're trying to cater to your audience and that is absolutely from a business perspective legitimate but of course that once again corrupts the process because then you're not an independent journalist bravely standing up as the fourth estate what you're actually doing is saying well I will write whenever I know that that is going to bring in money into my organization. And again, and that fits nicely into what we said before about that you will be rewarded for that. And when it comes to money, there's also then the worst case scenario, which is direct corruption. And that is, that is something that in many ways people pay too much attention to. Yes, unfortunately it does happen. Corruption absolutely exists. But in many ways, it's a less influential problem than the other things we discuss. It is just easier to be outraged about, right? We like, as, as, as human beings, we feel comfortable being outraged about certain things. And if, if we know that a journalist is bribed to write a certain story in a certain way, then that is absolutely horrific. And we can all get you know, upset about it and, and talk to each other and scream on social media about it. Sure, but that it has more to do with our own individual <laughs> urges rather than actual analysis of society because those cases are not that frequent and, and not that important from a bigger picture perspective. What's much more important is those more subtle dynamics that are harder to perceive and harder to get upset about, but really problematic. See, one of these subtle dynamics and also a form of value is... Uh, crumbs from authorities, you know, having a good relationship with with a politician, um, maybe even publishing a story when it's convenient for a politician, politician exchange for information. And that's also a form of, I don't want to call it corruption, but there is, I mean, it, it corrupts the process overall. Uh, absolutely. And this is such a difficult issue to deal with. Because as a journalist, if you were to never play the game with respect to politicians or business leaders or anyone in a position of authority, you're basically going to get shut out and your colleagues or rival newspapers are going to get access to stories that you will never get access to. And that is a very difficult balance for any journalist. Uh, you know, it's not easy necessarily to be a journalist. Where do you draw the line? 
if you're always going to criticize the prime minister or president of your country nonstop, they will not talk to you anymore. Um, that's it simple. And you do want them to talk to you. But of course, that leads to exactly a corruptive process because it leads to you kind of becoming friends with the prime minister or be at least being friendly. And that leads to you, you know, having a drink together at the end of the day or having a nice little chat together at the end of the day. And you know what? During that little chat, you get some really cool scoops from the prime minister. And then you're very grateful for that. And you're going to frame the story in a, in a way that is sympathetic to the prime minister. And that's exactly why the prime minister, of course, leaks it to you in the first place. So it becomes this really difficult to control vicious circle. It is, it is a, even the best journalists in the world have trouble with that balance, with finding the right balance there. And it's not easy to give a clear answer, but it's absolutely true that typically that leads to a, an establishment, an overall establishment, political, together with media establishment, that gets way too comfortable with each other and way too friendly with each other and giving each other the benefit of the doubt. And that is the last thing you want the media to do. The media should be like hawks on politicians. They should, they, they, they should be skeptical to the very last minute about anything that politicians say. But that's not the reality that we're witnessing, unfortunately. Yeah. And then the last factor that plays into the bubble is then maybe not even a too good relationship, but maybe even top-down pressure, uh, pressure from editors, publishers, or maybe even politicians. I mean, we already discussed last episode uh, that journalists uh, usually don't get pressured by politicians uh, in, in the Western world, but that there are other forms of pressure. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, yeah, exactly. So they do get pressured, but it doesn't happen very often that the prime minister would pick up the phone and say to the editor of a newspaper, now you write this, otherwise you're going to be in trouble. You know, that that in itself would be a story, right? That in itself would be enough for a newspaper to make a lot of money from. Uh, so it's not that very explicit kind of pressure that you would maybe expect from the Kremlin and Russia or Xi Jinping and Beijing, where it's directly the government telling certain newspapers what to write and what not to write. That doesn't happen as often and as frequently in the Western media. There might be some cases of it, but not many. But what happens all the time is signals. Signals of journalists getting like, oh, I have to be careful here because if I go too far, my editor is not going to like it or my editor might not publish it or I have to go through a million hoops uh, to actually get it published. And that is a obstacle because I've got other things to do and people might not like me as much anymore. Um, I might not be selected to ask questions at a press conference, those kinds of things. So uh, that kind of pressure is very clear. Now, there are often, of course, also clear cases of journalists being called in by the editor and the editor just received a, a, a difficult phone call with a politician, with a prime minister. And then the editor saying, hey, you know, are you sure that you've got enough evidence? And then you as a journalist start doubting and uh, then it all becomes a little bit difficult. Right. So there are these obstacles, these barriers that kind of force you into a certain narrative if you have a tendency to step out of line, to step beyond what the bubble allows you to do. So how does all of this look like, particularly with regards to the Western bubble? How do all of these factors play together to then create this bubble? Well, most of these factors that we have just discussed, so your own individual idealism and your own individual bubble that you grow up in and that you then used to become a journalist, um, the environment that you work in, the readers or the listeners to your media outlet, uh, if you work for a newspaper, people buying your newspaper, reading your article, your editors, the politicians around you, they are all part of these very powerful Western bubbles, namely um, we are a democracy. So absolutely, please um, write an article saying how democracy is under threat from right-wing fascists. Please go ahead and do it because we need to strengthen democracy. But please don't ask yourself, should we become like China? Um, please don't, uh, don't, don't question that very foundation because we've all agreed that as an objective truth, we, are the, we have the right type of society. Uh, if you are going to write a critical article about politicians, write how they're being undemocratic. Don't write how they're being too democratic. Don't say politicians are listening too much to the people because that would, that would sort of reinforce 
an idea that we need a more authoritarian approach to society. So there are certain lines that cannot be crossed. If you if you report on um, someone like Donald Trump, then make sure that you report on it from a perspective of him having authoritarian uh, aspects rather than uh, reporting that he actually is being pushed by a very popular, very populist movement, which is very democratic in a way, right? That, that actually uh, re- he represents the, the desires and the thoughts of many people who feel left out of the system. Don't criticize the system or the establishment because the system and the establishment are fine. The problem is those people on the fringes, the extremists who are questioning the system. Those kinds of clear red lines for a journalist are maybe not explicitly stated, but are quite clear. You, you as a journalist are supposed to stay within a certain narrative and certain framework about the society that you want to have. And I think I asked you this before uh, in, in another episode, but I can ask listeners again, just think about when was the last time that you read an article actually asking, hey, Spain, hey, the Netherlands, hey, United Kingdom, hey, France, do we still actually want to be a democracy or should we become like China? There are no such serious conversations taking place in the media because that is a no-go. That is something that you're not allowed to touch. So now that we have listened uh, to to why the bubble exists and how it exists, uh, last week uh, we already gave the example of a lot of sound bites that we played from CNN, from Sky News, and we had a lot of fun with that. So we're going to experiment with this uh, this week again. And uh, yeah, we have again prepared three sound bites and then one article that we would like to share with you listeners to kind of showcase how these different aspects of the bubble actually come into reality. So starting with the first uh, soundbite, Boulder, what exactly are we going to hear in the next 26 seconds? This is a fragment from Dominic Cummings, the former advisor of the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson, who is giving testimony to a parliamentary select committee about the relationship between Downing Street and the media and how things worked. And specifically here, he's talking about his connections with Laura Kunzberg, the chief political editor at the time of the BBC. I did occasionally talk to people. The main person really, though, that I spoke to in the whole of 2020 was Laura Koonsberg at the BBC because the BBC has a special position in the country, obviously during a crisis. And because I was in the room for certain crucial things, I could give guidance to her on certain very big stories. Okay, so so after having listened to this now, um, I mean, he's obviously talking about a special relationship and he's talking about this in times of crises. But I think that this is exactly what you mentioned with kind of the crumbs from authorities, is that journalists that get too comfortable and too close to um, people from the government, that they get too involved. And I mean, you, you know more about this because you followed uh, Kunzberg a little bit longer than I have. But she seems to be very friendly, at least towards the towards the conservative Tory government. Right. It's already noticeable in the way that Dominic Cummings frames it, right? He says, I I could give guidance. Now, that is already worrying. If a major political operative in Cummings at the time was very powerful as the first and foremost advisor to Boris Johnson, gives guidance to the most important political editor of a country, then something is going wrong in itself. This... It goes back to the conflict that we discussed before. As a journalist, of course, you need to have some access to the government. Otherwise, you're going to be shut out. That's unfortunately a part of how the system works. But Kunzberg is an example of someone who started becoming extremely comfortable with various Tory governments. And maybe if she had been under a Labour government with Labour government, it, it doesn't have to... Maybe it's got nothing to do with her ideological convictions. I, I don't know her personally, of course. But it becomes a system where you start feeling comfortable with the people in power. And as a result, you provide their narrative to the audience as if it is your journalistic narrative rather than their narrative. So Cummings gives her guidance. She goes on TV, uh, on the news or Newsnight on the BBC, and she 
explains government's policymaking or government decisions as if it is coming from her journalistic position rather than being a conduit for Dominic Cummings in this case. And unfortunately, we just don't have time here to have a whole list of examples. But if, if anyone doubts the veracity of this claim, please send in an email and, you know, we'll, we'll upload plenty of examples or we'll do another extra episode on this. There are so many examples of Laura Kunzberg on Brexit, on austerity, on all kinds of really complex and major policy initiatives, initiatives by the government where she is basically echoing government policy rather than being a journalistic hawk, rather than trying to hold the government to account. She is telling the story of the government and people hear a journalist speaking. So therefore, it sounds much more credible than if a uh, government spokesperson were to do the same. See, luckily, uh, soon there's our next recap episode coming up and we, we, we might have some time there to, to further discuss uh, the relationship between the two. Uh, but for now, uh, let's move on to uh, the next example, to a documentary that you have actually shown to me in class before. This 2013 documentary, Saving South Sudan, is about two American journalists and filmmakers that visit South Sudan together with Mashot, a Sudanese man now living in the US, who they asked to be their guide. What you will hear now is a 30-second excerpt from this, uh, with this American filmmaker talking about their guide, Mashot. Despite Mashot's humble origins as a young cattle herder, he likes to stay clean. Maybe too clean. I want to wipe my hand with my fist, but this thing is milk, the same thing. Go away. Yeah. I want whiny complaining. You're such a princess. Bring your own shit. Are you ready for our morning fight? Yeah, it's time. It's time. <laughs> you don't fight, man. In this place, we don't fight. <laughs> <laughs> So, so this is a documentary from, from Vice uh, about Sudan and Boulder. I mean, we just heard, but why did you show this to us in class and why are we talking about this now? Well, in, in some ways, I'm, I would like to both encourage people to watch the whole half-hour documentary, but then again, I don't want them to do it because in many it's it's interesting as an example of how not to report on things from a Western perspective. I just hope that people, when they're watching this, they, they see it as clearly as I, I think people should see it. Namely, this is an American filmmaker who goes in 2013, goes to South Sudan, newly independent country, uh, to film the violence that is occurring there. Now, this violence, by the way, is part very much pushed by the Western bubble, um, the West that pushed for South Sudanese independence when it was completely obvious to anyone working there, including myself at the time, that South Sudan wasn't ready for that kind of independence yet. But under the mo under the motto of democracy is always good, and we're gonna we're, we're gonna give people a chance to control their own destiny, we will make you independent from the horrible Republic of Sudan, North Sudan, right? The West created this country that then turned into bloodshed and this American filmmaker goes there three years later to film it. First problem, it is a documentary that focuses completely on South Sudan as if it is responsible for its own violence, whereas this was a Western-led, Western-pushed project. It doesn't take any responsibility as an American. You know, if you're a journalist coming from the United States, you very much in line with the Western bubble. He doesn't critically look at American policy towards South Sudan or European policy towards South Sudan. It is very much about, oh, the South Sudanese, they can't help but fight between each other. And look at what a terrible humanitarian disaster they're inflicting upon themselves. That's the overall tone. Specifically, there are there's so many examples in this in this documentary, but specifically... He asks a former lost boy, a former child soldier who fought in previous violent conflict in South Sudan, um, who now lives in the United States, to be his guide during the documentary maker. This, the name of this guide is Mashot. And so he's asking a former child soldier who fled the horrors of his childhood to go back to his home country and to guide them through... Um, the conflict that they are filming. 
And the way that my shot gets spoken about by the filmmaker and the way that the filmmaker speaks about the people in South Sudan displays not only a disturbing level of racism, but also a disturbing level of arrogance about his superiority that it is to be astounding that people are positive about this documentary. It's so completely blatant and so horrific in the way that this filmmaker cannot see through his own bubble, cannot see through the fact that he's an American, um, that he has to be very careful with neocolonial attitudes, that he has to be very careful with latent racism, that he has to be very careful with the sense of superiority. There's no filter to that. And as a result, the whole documentary says much more about the filmmaker rather than about South Sudan or the conflict um, that it is experiencing. Yeah. And I mean, can you believe it that he wants to be clean despite his humble origins? It is, it is, it is completely outrageous, right? It is, it is, it is so to have the, to have the nerve to sort of question whether someone who was a goat herder doesn't want to be clean. You know, and there again is that latent racism, of course, but the, the idea that, oh, he comes from a poor country is not as civilized as us Westerners. And as a result, it's kind of surprising how often he washes himself, shows both a level of ignorance and a level of superiority complex that goes beyond anything that we should find acceptable. Unfortunately, this kind of talk, this kind of approach, this kind of attitude is something that I witnessed all the time when I was still working in the development sector, of course. And this is super popular. I mean, this documentary has 2 million views on YouTube and the comments are overwhelmingly positive. Wow, what a clear-cut reporting from Vice. Uh, what a great documentary, uh, well-made, all of this. It's that there's, there's no critical thought about this. I mean, you can't blame the people for it. Uh, that's the reason why they're watching a documentary, but they're watching a documentary from the Western bubble. Absolutely, and I should point out two things about this popularity. First of all, so this, this in, on YouTube, it was published in 2014. Um, in those days, you know, this was before Despacito and Sai and Gangnam Style and all that. Two million views is a lot for those days. Uh, that's now two million. It doesn't seem that impressive anymore. But 10 years ago, it very much was a large number. And this wasn't the only platform on which it was published. So as a result, at the time, it was shown in a lot of different places. And a lot of people were talking about it. And everyone seemed to be talking about it, at least in the West. Let me put it like that. In Europe and in the United States, people were talking about it. Oh, what a great expose on the horrible violence taking place there. Rather than what a great expose of the latent racism and latent neocolonialism of the filmmaker. On top of that, and as you know from... Years ago, when you were in my classroom, Dario, I could talk about this documentary for a very long time. On top of that, the title of this video, of this documentary, is Saving South Sudan. And the filmmaker keeps on going on about how my shot is trying to save South Sudan, which is my shot, the, the guide, which is, of course, a framing that does not correspond to reality because this is a filmmaker's project. It's not my shots project. He's just a guide here. It is a clear example projection of white savior complex, if you like, if to put it in simplistic terms. The idea that this American thinks, oh, as outsiders, we can, we can change the course of history for this country. We can show them how to do things better. We can, we can find a solution to this problem. No attention at all is paid to the fact that it was the West who pushed for this and who are in large part responsible for the violence taking place in South Sudan in 2013, 2014. And instead, we as white outsiders will save it. Now, I hope that it's completely obvious how this fits into a Western bubble mentality where there is no way that we criticize ourselves but we are criticizing those violent outsiders, those who can't help themselves because they haven't gotten to our wonderful liberal value system yet. Moving on to the next audio we want to listen to. Here you will hear the former news anchor Brian Williams from MSNBC describing the US military launching missiles at Syria in 2017 from a warship in the Mediterranean. 
go into greater detail we see these beautiful pictures at night from the decks of these two u.s navy vessels in the eastern mediterranean i am tempted to quote the great leonard cohen i'm guided by the beauty of our weapons um, and they are beautiful pictures of uh, of fearsome armaments making what is for them a brief flight over to this airfield what did they hit what are you convinced I mean, I don't, again, I don't even know where to start. It's uh, how lyrical um, this man is describing the launching of weapons uh, into the night that are about to kill people. I don't know, it sickens me, it worries me, and I do not understand why, why someone like this can be on television. Well, first of all, uh, I had the great opportunity to go to a concert of Leonard Cohen, the person he's actually quoting, uh, two years before the great man died. And it, it, it already is outrageous how he completely misinterprets the lyrics because the lyrics are very much the opposite of how he uses them. Um, so me as a Leonard Cohen fan, I feel already upset about that. More importantly, however, it is fascinating how a, by the way, liberal news anchor, right? This is not Fox News. He, he was seen as a relatively liberal voice on American media. How this person can sort of become in all celebrate almost the power, the military power of the United States as controlled by Donald Trump at the time. Talking about missiles that are being shot from a U.S. warship in the Mediterranean that are about to hit uh, locations in Syria how he completely loses any sense of critical perspective. He loses his um, sense of responsibility as a journalist to hold power to account and instead just is in awe of the military might of his country. Now, this is something that happens all the time in situations of war where journalists completely confuse their personal connection to their country, their nationalism, their, uh, in, the, in case of the United States, their admiration for the U.S. armed forces, because that admiration is much stronger in the United States than in European countries, for example. And as a result, no longer fulfill their basic obligations as a journalist and become cheerleaders for violence, which is, of course incredibly scary and that is that explains the start and the continuation of many wars including vietnam including iraq including afghanistan where journalists cannot this uh, separate themselves from the military and political establishment of their country from the example you just mentioned uh, on, on iraq an example that we have mentioned many times here moving on to the last item we want to discuss an article published from the New York Times in the year 2004 in response to the New York Times coverage of uh, the Iraq War of 2003, uh, where they're basically apologizing for the coverage uh, of, uh, yeah, of, of the previous year. And one sentence that stood out here, and we're obviously going to link the entire article as, of, as all other um, audio bytes in the post description below, but one sentence really stood out to me here. In some cases, information that was controversial then and seems questionable now was insufficiently qualified or allowed to stand unchallenged. And this uh, here refers to American intelligence that was used to justify uh, the invasion of Iraq, uh, which was either based on yeah, uh, local Iraqi information or sometimes even made up uh, intelligence. Exactly. And so what you see here is them at least to a certain level, a year too late, by the way, or two years too late, but at least recognizing that something went wrong. And what did go wrong? The New York Times became way too chummy, way too comfortable with the establishment narrative. That can happen, and it's good at least that they recognize that there was a problem afterwards. But this is a very clear example of them being biased by the idea that their country is a Western democratic system and therefore politicians are more trustworthy than evil Saddam Hussein who was an evil dictator in Iraq and responsible for a war 10 years earlier and responsible for the oppression of court, courts and all kinds of horrible things and so you've got a newspaper 
who can no longer take an objective position towards something because their governments, their country is saying, we need to go to war to remove this evil dictator. And it is, becomes very hard for establishment media to criti criticize that. Now, there were lots of voices who criticized the invasion of Iraq before it even started, but mainstream media found it very difficult to find that balance. What is particularly striking to me, though, is that even though the New York Times recognized this, partially at least, and listeners can read the, the apology themselves, it seems that the New York Times really didn't learn much from it. The reason is that the main, main problem behind all of this is a, a comfort level with that Western establishment. And that comfort level is not healthy. If you want to be a critical newspaper, you cannot be too close to the powers that be. And this, by the way, is also one of the reasons why so much mainstream media feels so comfortable criticizing Donald Trump, even though he became president, but not Joe Biden or Barack Obama. Why not? Because Donald Trump, even though he became president, is an outsider to the establishment, is an outsider to the system. The establishment doesn't like him. So it becomes very easy to be critical about him. In reality, what you really want is for the New York Times to be as critical about Donald Trump, uh, sorry, as critical about Joe Biden or as critical about Barack Obama as they are about Donald Trump, because that is what their role is. But they can't do that because Donald Trump seems to be a threat to the Western establishment and the others seem to perpetuate the Western establishment. And with this, uh, with this last point, I think uh, this is the perfect moment to transition into the next category. What is the problem? So looking at all of this, um, what we've just looked at, um, at the bubble overall, at these four individual examples, what's the overall damage here? The damage, or at least the problem, is that you've got a media industry sector that is increasingly over time becoming comfortable with its proximity to the powers that be. And they justify that with the idea that everyone is representing liberal democracy. But in reality, it is just that over time they become closer and closer. Now, it's not a problem of the 21st century exclusively that the media has a political narrative. Political narratives have existed since the very beginning of the media. It is not a problem that there are some very rich people in charge of the media that's also existed, but it is a problem of journalists and, and editors at a relatively low level no longer distinguishing between their direct environment and their role towards society. So as long as their environment rewards them and, and the, the institutions around them tell them that they're doing the right thing when it comes to analyzing Russia versus Ukraine or when it comes to analyzing Iraq versus the United States or when it comes to analyzing the Taliban in Afghanistan versus the wonderful liberal democracy of, let's say, Spain, they um, no longer perform the function we need them to perform. We need them to, to hold ourselves to account. We need them to use all their investigative might to expose the weaknesses of our society. Instead, they don't get rewarded for that, so they don't do that. What they do is they expose the weaknesses of other countries that are not like us. And they become part of a narrative and they frame news stories accordingly that pushes for the idea that the problem the world faces is a problem of others not being as we are. Whereas in reality, the problem we face is that our society is crumbling on all sides and that is not being exposed anymore sufficiently. So we don't have that fourth estate, that fourth pillar that we so desperately require to prove to history that Western society can survive in the long term. And with this almost dark image, then let's move into the final category. What now? So is there any, any light on the hill that you see? Uh, is there any manual that you can give us uh, where, where, where any of these problems could be resolved anytime soon? Because, I mean, the media is absolutely essential to the Western society that... Uh, as we mentioned always in the introduction, that we actually quite like. 
it is very difficult because of the deep underlying processes that we've described, right? There's no simple solution, as there never is in those in our episodes, unfortunately. It is going to be very interesting to see what happens given the changing nature of the media landscape, right? So newspapers such as The Guardian or New York Times or CNN are way less influential than they were, say, 25 years ago because we've got social media, we've got all kinds of small independent outlets. Independent outlets aren't necessarily better. In fact, often they are worse because they very much also push a narrative. But at least there's a greater diversity when it comes to news commentary and to a certain extent when it comes to reporting anyone can take up a phone and just report what's happening in the street nowadays so there might be some positive dynamics coming out of that however when it comes to actually holding governments to account the problem is that social media and the internet in general have become so politicized that if a newspaper nowadays or a YouTube channel criticizes the government, they're just being put into the left-wing corner or the right-wing corner, and they're not being taken seriously because they're just a political voice. They're pushing a domestic agenda. There are very few media outlets nowadays that are being seen as a neutral observer of our society and whose word is actually taken seriously by, let's say, 90% of the population. So hopefully there will be some kind of process in which society starts trusting some basic news outlets again some very uh, you know fundamental um, either large um, online channels or whether it is the bbc or whether it is cnn new york times that they go through a process that the population at large looks at them and say they are defending our society versus potential oppression from politicians inside of our country. And they are the ones standing up for us as a whole, not from for the left or for the right of the political spectrum, but for society at large. They're doing the investigative journalism that we need them to do. They, If there's a Democratic president, they will hold that Democratic president to account. If there's a Republican president, they will hold that Republican president to account because that is what we need from them. Hopefully there will be something like that in the future, but right now they're on a decline and it's going from bad to worse. And I mean, when it comes to the technological development, it's as always is that society is running from the wave and not riding the wave is, yeah. I also see very little like positive influence towards this question coming from overall technological development. Right, because the fragmentation in itself is not the answer, right? It, it, it is an answer in terms of reporting. We get more information nowadays than we used to get, obviously, uh, because of what I said previously. The, the fact that anyone can take pick up a phone and just record what they're seeing means that we've got much more, many more images from Ukraine or many more images from Afghanistan that we would otherwise have had. That in itself is a good thing. But then the media properly investigating those who are in power in Western society, uh, that is harder to see and that fragmentation doesn't help there. Hmm. And this seems like a, a moment uh, to end today's conversation on Western uh, media bias. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Alder, which closing quote did you bring for us today? Well, still outraged by Brian Williams horribly abusing the lyrics of Leonard Cohen, I thought I would read out the first three verses of the song First We Take Manhattan, which is the song that Brian Williams quoted uh, in that segment that we just played just for the listeners to remember that the actual meaning of the song was very different than worshipping violence and the military. They sentenced me to 20 years of boredom for trying to change the system from within. I am coming now, I'm coming to reward them. First we take Manhattan, then we take Berlin. I'm guided by a signal in the heavens. I'm guided by this birthmark on my skin. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. First we take Manhattan, then we take Berlin. As you love me as a loser, but now you're worried that I just might win, you know the way to stop me, but you don't have the discipline. How many nights I prayed for this to let my work begin?
First we take Manhattan, then we take Berlin. Mm -hmm.